Well, we're in a series on the life of Moses called The Story of Doubt and Deliverance. And we're in a section of that series called The Big Ten, The Ten Commandments. Last week, we started the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. And I uh, told parents in particular that the next several sermons in this series are going to be for more mature audiences. So if you like to have your children in here for church, I would just caution you that this, the uh, sermons are going to be more mature, talking about issues like abortion, murder, uh, and talking about like adultery coming up. So I'd, I'd urge you to bring your children down to the kids area, and you can even do that now if you didn't do that to begin with. Uh, if you're a guest with us, I don't want you to be caught off guard. We don't usually have topical sermons here. I usually just open up a passage of the scripture and preach verse by verse. Uh, but when it comes to this, this is going to be more of a topical sermon where we uh, talk about it from different angles. Last week, we talked about how we live in the most violent generation in all of human history. If you think that, you know, those barbaric times are behind us as humans, you have not looked at the body count. And we talked last week about how just four men alone in the last 150 years are responsible for 175 million dead. It's a giant number. It's about half the global population of Jesus' day. Half. Four men. Uh, and that was Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, and Mao. Today, uh, we're talking about life in the womb. And I like what Albert Moeller said. He said, we live in the age of megadeath and microdeath, meaning death on the industrial scale has filled the pages of our history books. But there's also death on the microscopic scale, what's happening inside the womb. The topic of human life, the sanctity of human life, abortion, is a complicated topic that divides our nation. It's complex because it's personal, dealing with families and bodies. It's political, and arguments have been carefully scripted on both sides of the aisle and have been widely distributed. It's financial because billions of dollars flow through the business of abortion. It is spiritual because the Bible speaks to the issue. It's communal because we all have to decide how life should be protected and defended. I want you to ask what you believe about human life. Uh, when does human life begin? What makes a life human life? And when should human life be protected? Honestly, for me, it's only within the last four or five years that I've fully nailed down my informed convictions about these things. I would have said I'm pro-life. I would have said, you know, of course, but I wouldn't have been able to defend it uh, to, to conception like I can today. And my goal is for you to have a strong biblical conviction on this topic that you are prepared to discuss and defend, whether in the classroom, at the doctor's office, in the break room, or wherever. When it comes to this issue, we have to understand the gravity of it. It's not a small issue. It's not a small issue. When a politician says, I want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare, Rare, they are not discussing this world. They are discussing fantasy land. Rare is the far furthest word from the reality. Some of the stats that can help you understand the gravity we'll put on the screen. 60 million abortions in the United States have happened since Roe v. Wade in 1973. So that's 45 years ago, 60 million abortions. Prior to Roe v. Wade, some of the years as they estimate the number of abortions, were in the double digits, like not even up to 100, and then 100. But after Roe v. Wade, if you checked the counter, it suddenly sprang into hundreds of thousands and then 
millions a year. So that was a big year. Uh, if you average it out over the last 45 years, that means in the United States we've had 1.3 million abortions a year. It's a huge number. 111,000 a month. Uh, 3,652 per day. 152 an hour. Two and a half every minute. So every minute I've been born, two and a half abortions every minute. This is not a small thing that's happening rarely as the politicians would like to say. The numbers are even more grave globally. Um, the best estimates say that about 40 to 50 million abortions a year occurred before between 2010 and 2014. 20, uh, 40 to 50 million per year or 125,000 a day. 125,000 a day. That's not rare. If you had to guess what percent of babies in the whole world, uh, pregnancies in the whole world, ended in abortion. Just in your mind, come up with a number. Now give it some thought, because we're talking about lots and lots and lots of pregnancies in the whole world. Okay, so if you had to guess what percent of total pregnancies in the whole world ended in abortion between 2010 and 2014... The number is 25%. The number is 25%. Next year, if a disease came about on our planet that killed 25% of one-year-old children, how would our world react? And what if it happened again the year after that? 25% of one-year-old children dead because of a disease. And then what if it happened a year after that too? One in four. Uh, the world would not do nothing. The world would not do nothing. So, this is a giant issue, and the gravity of it cannot be overstated. The stakes are high. Hundreds of millions of lives hang in the balance. And I want you to have strong convictions on this. It's staggering to realize that in World War II, 50 to 80 million people died. 50 to 80 million people died over several years which makes the womb a more dangerous place today than a world war. It's not rare. So let's find out what we believe about this and how we can share this view with others. Let's pray. Father, these statistics are horrifying. And we know that you will hold us and our generation accountable. Are these human lives or are they simply cells? Lord, there are millions of lives at stake. We just pray that you would help form our hearts and our minds on this issue. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, there's just a simple verse. It's very quick. It does not unpack itself here, but somewhat it does later. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, Moses is at the foot of a fiery mountain, Mount Sinai, and there's a thundering voice, and Moses comes down from that with the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment says this, you shall not murder. Very simple, and then moves on to the next one. It's so simple, and it, it's an umbrella command that covers thousands and thousands of different circumstances, and one of them we have to ask ourselves is life in the womb. So you can jot this down as a review. What is murder? Jot this down. What is murder? We found out last week that murder is the unauthorized taking of a life through direct or negligent behavior. 
unauthorized taking of a life through direct or negligent behavior. This is not a command against all killing. Uh, we, again, you can go online and find this sermon from last week. We touched on all this. But it is against the unauthorized taking of a life through direct or negligent behavior. So if that's the definition, then the question is, is abortion the taking of a life? Is it the taking of a life? And is it through direct or negligent behavior? If so, then it qualifies as murder. If not, then it doesn't qualify as murder. So number one for today, and this is the key question, if you ever have a conversation with somebody and you think that there's really an opening to have a good conversation that's not going to, you know, like ruin the family party, here is the golden question. You can, this, if you have one thing, you can ask the other person. This is it. What is the unborn? Write that down. What, if you ask someone that question, you have already put the argument on such level footing. What is the unborn? Every other subset of questions comes from this fundamental question. What is the unborn? If the unborn is human life, then abortion is murder. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter how or when or where. The finances, it doesn't matter. It is the taking of a human life if the unborn is a human life. If it isn't human life, abortion isn't murder. It isn't. In fact, it's nothing tragic. It's nothing, sometimes when people are pro-choice and they say, I know it's one of the hardest decisions that anyone can make. Not if it's not a life. If it's not a life, it's like getting a tooth pulled. Why is it so emotional? If it's not a life, you're simply removing cells from a body. Is it human life or is it not human life? Jot this down. The biblical argument that we use to defend is, uh, human life is this. Human life is sacred because we are made in God's image. This is why it's important, why life is valuable. In Psalm 139, 13 to 14, it says this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my, what does it say there? So God's at work doing the work of life in the womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. The inward parts doesn't just include the biology. It includes the spirit and the soul. So here you have David saying that I know I was hand-carved by a creator, by a maker, by a God. So it's not necessarily the mother's body that's making the child. It's God who has set up life. And God is making a person with a soul who he knows. God told Jeremiah, I knew you before you were born, and I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations, meaning God knew the person, not just the biology or the hair color. He knew the being who was being formed, and he knew that person before they ever came into existence. So we make a strong biblical case that this is human life because God's making it. It's a person God knew even before they entered the womb, and God has a plan for that person's life. All of that is a biblical argument that Christians use to say this is a human life. Everyone has to answer the question, what gives value to human life? What gives value to human life? We believe that value comes simply by being human. It's the kind of thing you are that gives you the value of being made in God's image. People who don't believe in God, atheists or agnostics, they have no rational basis to assign human life value. It's no different than any other form of life including a plankton. Like, if you don't have a God who made something in his image, then life doesn't have value. 
When they try and treat it like it does, they're not getting that value from anywhere rational. They're simply pulling it out of thin air. They don't have a reason to say life is valuable. And therefore, they don't have to protect it because it's not sacred. But we believe that human life is sacred because we're made in God's image. So if the kind of thing determines the value of life, then the question we have to ask is, when does life become human? Because if we know it's human, we know it's sacred. If it's not human yet, then it's not sacred. Now you might be thinking, well, yeah, I mean, once you can see that it's a human life, once that it has human parts, then yeah, it should be protected. But early on, I mean, if it's just one cell, how can that possibly be human? This is an important point because 90% of abortions happen before 13 weeks, okay, according to the Centers for Disease Control. So if you don't know how to defend life in its earliest form, you're not solving the problem, okay? You're not solving the problem. If you can't defend life up to conception, then you're actually allowing for most of the abortions that happen. Sure, it's good to tell people that the heart begins to beat you know, just like a month into its life when it's the size of a sesame seed. Yeah, that's powerful. It's powerful to tell somebody that the heart begins to beat just after over a month. What about before that? Are you telling that person that before the heart begins to beat, it's okay to abort? Because most of the abortions happen super early. You have to be very careful. We want to defend life at conception because as soon as a human being is conceived, we know that child is made in the image of God. God has made that human child and he has a plan for their life. Now, that's a biblical argument, but there's also a biological argument. Jot this down. Human life begins at conception. We believe human life begins at conception. And I could give you a biological argument for this. It doesn't even come from the Bible. It's simply look at the medicine, look at the science. And therefore, it applies whether people are Christians or not. We know what life is now. Life, in its most basic form, is a distinct genetic being. From cell number one. We know what life is, and we know how to identify what form of life we're dealing with. We know human life when we see it. It has 46 chromosomes. If we find those 46 chromosomes, humans are genetically distinct. Um, ants have two. Uh, crabs have 208. So when we look at the chromosomes and we figure out how the first cell mechanically works, we can tell if it's a human life form. We know from one cell if it's human, and we know that that human that we find in one cell is different from mom. That unique human cell from its first cell is genetically different from mom. So in its earliest stage, you have human life biologically, and you have a distinct human life that's different from mother. Mom doesn't add anything human to the cell once it's formed. All mom gives is nutrition. That being is genetically distinct from the first cell. We learn this in biology. And the first human cell is not simple life. It's not simple. It's not, well, it's not like it's, well, some tiny little nothing. It's not simple. It's highly complex. In 1990, the Human Genome Project sought out to pull one DNA strand out of one human cell, one cell. And the cost to taxpayers to do this was $2.7 billion of your dollars. Okay. A thousand researchers from 20 institutes in six nations worked on the project. They found in one cell 3 billion chemical letters of DNA. If you remember your 
DNA class. There's A, G, C, T, there's the bonds, and you can map them out throughout the DNA strand. And if you typed them out, they found, uh, they found 3 billion letters in one cell. It took them 13 years to map what they found in one cell. This is not simple life. They found enough information to fill 5,000 books. One cell. This is not a simple being. This is highly complicated, just like all life is. We know it's life. We know it's human. Now, this is a biological argument. We can make this with anyone, and it applies to anyone regardless of their religion. We know what life is. We know when it's human. We know when we see it, and it's human life from cell one. It's highly complicated life, and therefore, it's human life. Therefore, you can jot this down. Taking the life of an unborn child is murder. It is taking life through direct or negligent behavior. The unborn is human life from cell one. Therefore, taking that life is murder. Taking that life is murder. We can know that biologically, and we know that biblically. Now, the question is, how do we defend our view? Because there are a lot of people who would say, well, I, I just don't agree with you, you know. And how, how do we defend our view? How do we have conversations marked with grace and truth about this hot topic? Write this down. How do we defend our view? How do we do it? Well, one of the best ways to defend your view or to share your view with others is the unborn is different from you in only four ways. Okay, And if you can demonstrate that none of these four differences create humanity, uh, then you can show that you are essentially the same as the unborn human. Now, if any of these four differences can be shown to create personhood or add humanity, then you can show that you're human and that's not. So an easy acronym for these four uh, differences is SLED. I wrote the first letter for you down in the notes, SLED, S-L-E-D. So you can remember it. The first one is size. Jot this down. Well, it's so small, microscopic, the size of a poppy seed. It's so small. How can it be human? Does size add humanity? Does bigger mean more human? Well, let's try that outside of the womb. You know, is LeBron James more human than a two-year-old? Is he? No. Bigger doesn't mean more human. At, at a certain size, do you get granted your humanity or your personhood? No. So size doesn't make you human. And if size doesn't make you human, then you can be human from the start, even if you're not a big human. Even if you're a very, very small human in the earliest stages of development, you're still human. So size is a difference, but it doesn't make a human. Next, level of development level of development, uh, meaning there's no parts there. It hasn't even developed fingers or toes. How can you say that's a human? When there was a big debate during President Bush's presidency about stem cell research and embryonic stem cell research, there were people who were very angry because President Bush said we're defending life even in the embryonic stage and we won't do research on the embryo. Well, certain people who needed stem cells to help their condition got really angry. Michael Kinsley was one person, and here's what he said. Weak old embryos are microscopic clumps of cells, unthinking, unknowing, with fewer physical human qualities than a mosquito. So that's a heated version of the argument. Not human, unthinking, unknowing. 
doesn't look human. All right? So how do we answer this when someone says doesn't look human? Well, we would just say that it is human. We know what human life is. It's human life at its earliest stages of development. When it comes to how life forms, the parts don't create the whole. It's not like once you have, like Mr. Potato Head, it's not like all, once you have all the parts, then you have a whole human and then the heart turns on. All right? We understand that cells divide, which means life comes from inside that first cell. And it keeps dividing and multiplying and dividing and multiplying. That means that the parts come from the whole. All right? This is very important to understand. There's whole human life from cell one. The parts don't add up to a life. The parts reveal what form of life you're dealing with. So if I lose an arm, you know, I didn't lose 25% of my humanity because part of it's gone. The parts don't make me human. The, I'm whole human genetically, biologically, and spiritually. The parts just show you what's been forming from cell number one. You get into big trouble when you start trying to make a list of things you need to see before you call it a human. Because those things can come off the list later in life. What if, you, if you're like, well, I need a conscious being. Well, what if, what if you fall unconscious? What about when you're sleeping? Can people kill you if you're unconscious? Consciousness doesn't create humanity. Well, there, needs, there at least needs to be like functioning organs. That, well, what if you lose a lung? You know, what if you, what if you need a donation of, of a kidney or something, a, a transplant? I mean, do you see how when you start making a list of things that you need for a human, that list can change after you're born? Okay, so it's very, it's, it's hard when you're making a grocery list of things before you'll call it a human. That's also complicated because other people can throw things on that list. If you're making a list, then other people can throw things on a list. And they can say, well, I'm not going to call it a full human until I see that it's a boy. Or, or that it's white. Or that there's a certain eye color or certain potential IQ that I'd like to see. Now we've got designer babies, right? And when I see my list, then I'll have a human child. But if I don't see my, and, and see, you can't police another person's list once you're making a list. You're dehumanizing someone because of the parts you want to see. So the level of development doesn't create a human, it reveals a human. Do you know something that's fascinating? Is after a human cell divides one time, after one day, after it divides one time, that second cell, in rare instances, breaks off and can become an entirely different human being. Twins. Let me get this straight. One cell can reproduce and form two whole human lives. The first one has lost nothing human, and the second one has everything human. What does that tell us? That tells us that you have a whole human life, so whole that it's capable of reproducing an entirely second human life. Everything's there from cell one. Everything. Nothing is missing. When you know that, you have to defend human life from conception. So level of development doesn't create humanity, it reveals it. Next, environment. Environment. Meaning it, you're in the womb, you're in another person's body. Well, where you are doesn't determine what you are. Okay? Six inches of movement from within the mother to outside the mother doesn't make you a human. It doesn't create humanity. Um... Because of this argument that, well, you're, you're not out of the womb, you're in a womb. There have been huge medical atrocities. Uh, partial birth abortion is the procedure where a partially delivered child who's not fully out can be aborted. 
It's a horrifying procedure where a half-delivered baby has their skull crushed and their brains removed. Uh, it's been done many times in our country. And it's because the baby's not fully born yet, so it's not fully human yet. You would think that this would be a morally clear decision to make, but it was not until 2003 that Congress banned this procedure. And wasn't until 2007 that the Supreme Court upheld the ban. Why did it take so long for rational human beings to see that this is a wicked thing to do even one time? We have gone morally mad that we even would allow this once. Environment doesn't create humanity. Next, dependency. Size, level of development, environment, dependency. Well, some people will say, well, when the child takes its first breath, then it's, then it's a human life, meaning it's breathing on its own. Well, what else does it have to do on its own? Like, how independent does this life form have to be before you would say it's a human? Does it have to feed itself? Because a newborn can't do that. You know? Does it have to bathe itself, clothe, it, clothe itself? I mean, there's a lot of middle school students who wouldn't make it on their own by that definition. It's just basic. Okay? Honestly, we believe that we were actually designed to be dependent on other people. But here you have the argument that if that life can't survive on its own, this is why a big line, you know, is like the 12, 13 week. That's why, like globally, that's a big line. Well, because then the child could make it, you know, outside of the womb. But a lot of that depends on technology. The day could come where a conceived child could make it outside of the womb. All right, then they're going to be in big trouble with that argument. Because they might be able to then technologically make that a viable life outside the womb. Suddenly, have we changed when a person becomes a human because of when we can sustain it outside of the womb? That doesn't make sense. Dependency doesn't create or, or nullify humanity. Okay, you can be a human and be dependent on others for life. And frankly, a, a child who is in need of protection, a child who needs others so that it can make it, that should be a candidate for our greatest protection. That's not a candidate for being destroyed. My friend, Mike, who pastors the Harvest Church in uh, North Raleigh, uh, he's a senior pastor of Harvest North Raleigh, he was uh, born with an immune deficiency. In your blood, there are four basically defenses in your blood. They're called globulins, I think. And they're represented by G-A-M-E. You have four of them. He was born so that by about his 20s, he only had one of them working. So he had 25% of an immune system. And he was getting like very ill every year, and they finally discovered it. Uh, and they said, well, here's what we can do. You, can, you, can, uh, you need to get your immune system up. And so we can give you a transfusion once a month. <clears throat> takes three hours. And we'll get you from 25% up to 50%. We can give you one of those four. So you got about half an immune system. That will give you a fighting chance. Without that, who knows how long you're going to make it. So he goes in once a month, three hours, gets a transfusion. It costs insurance $25,000 a month. $25,000 a month. The um, globulin from the blood has to be taken. It has to be like sifted out of 6,000 different blood donors for one transfusion. $25,000 a month, 6,000 people donating blood so that this man can have a fighting chance. Is he not human? Has he lost his humanity because he's so dependent on others for life? Because he can't make it without us? No. 
In fact, people are rallying to help. That's what we do when it's human life. We help to protect and save it. And if we should help and protect vulnerable human life, if we can, should help and protect saving vulnerable human life outside the womb, we should do it inside the womb. Dependency is a bad argument. So here's the four. Size, level of development, environment, and dependency. And we can show that none of those four gives you humanity. None of them. Therefore, the unborn child is just as human as you and me. There's nothing essentially different between one, the first cell, and you. It's human life. So how do we defend our view? Size, level of development, environment, dependency. And then you have to watch out for conversation killers. There are three words in particular that all branch off into different arguments. And if someone brings these up, it's an attempt to shut down the conversation. Uh, so those three words are choice, health, and opinion. Let's go through each one of them. Someone will use the word choice. I, I support a woman's right to choose. And suddenly you are in the predicament of having to either agree with or disagree with a woman having a choice. Now, you have to understand that this is a manipulation of language. It's a reduction of the issue down to one simple word, choice. And it's putting you in a position that you can't win. All right? Do you support a woman's right to choose or not? And if you say no, then you're against every woman and you're against every choice. This is a manipulation of language. Uh, here's the fact. The fact is, everyone expects women to make morally responsible choices when it comes to children. Everyone. Everyone expects women to make morally responsible choices when it comes to children. So what choice are we discussing? If the unborn is a child, she should make a morally responsible choice with that child. That's what we believe. Would you support a woman's right to choose to leave her two-year-old in charge of her nine-month-old while she goes clubbing? No. That doesn't mean you're against a woman's right to choose. It means you expect her, like everyone else, to make morally responsible choices with children. And if it's a child, you have the right to expect her to make a morally responsible choice with that child from the earliest stage of development. So be careful with the manipulation of language. It all comes back to the real question, what is the unborn? If it's a child, she should make a morally responsible choice, just like everyone else. The next word is health. This is a huge one. Well, I support, I'm a champion of women's health care. A champion. A woman's body is a woman's choice. You know, I have no business in her womb. Okay, so what do we do when the issue of health comes up? Uh, well, we can be talking about two things at the same time. We can be talking about a woman's health and what's best for her body, and we can be talking about how she treats a human life. We don't have to pick one or the other. We can talk about both of those things at the same time, and we should. If there's a human life in the mother, then we should also say the health of that human is just as important. Some of the extreme cases that come up are, well, what if... What if a mother's life is in danger? Well, when it comes to a woman's life being in danger, it's a different moral question. If two lives are in danger, like if uh, ectopic pregnancy, if you know, the embryo implants in the fallopian tube, two lives are now in danger. Okay? Well, it's a right thing to do to save the life you can. Right? So, but it's a very different moral conversation saying, well, what about when the life of the mother is at risk versus what about when the lifestyle of the mother is at risk? You have to differentiate between those two 
very different moral conversations. What about in the extreme cases of rape or incest? What I would say is this. Most of the time when that comes up, uh, it's an emotionally manipulative argument. You just have to recognize that. There's about less than 0.11% of abortions happen because of the life of the mother is in danger or rape, point less than 1%. So if you're talking to somebody and they want to go down that very emotional road, what I would say is this. I'd say, okay, let's say that abortion is allowed when the life of the mother is at risk or when there's a rape involved. We've just taken less than 1% of abortions off the table. Let's talk about the remaining 99% or 59.4 million in the United States. Tell me how you feel about those human lives. It's usually a distraction, and it's an emotionally charged thing for someone to say, um, well, what about in the extreme cases? So be ready for the idea of health. Be ready for the word of choice. Remember to come back to the golden question, what is the unborn? What is the unborn? If it's human life, it should be treated outside the womb and inside the womb the same. The next one is, well, that's just your opinion, or that's just my opinion. That's just your opinion, that's just my opinion. So somebody would say, well, I believe in pro-life, but I I wouldn't want to tell anyone else what to think. Or I wouldn't want to tell someone else what to do with their body. When it comes to that, just understand that laws exist to force people to do the right thing, even if they don't want to do it. That's the purpose of a law. So if a human life is being taken, laws should prevent it. And if a human life is being taken, you should hold the other person responsible to not take that life. If you found out down the street in your neighborhood, innocent children were losing their lives in sex slavery, would you say, well, I disagree, but I wouldn't want laws telling people what to do with their bodies? No, you would not, because the lives of children are at stake And laws are meant to protect the people who can't protect themselves. So just like if you saw a mother drunk driving with her children, you wouldn't say, well, who am I to tell her what to do with her body? You know, you would intervene. The same principles apply to a child in the womb. Laws are meant to force people to do the right thing. So the words choice, health, and opinion can be conversation killers if you're not ready for them. And what we would just say is we keep coming back to the question, what is the unborn? The unborn is a child. We should expect and force people to do the right thing to protect and save human lives. That's what's right. So the last question, number three, is how do we apply our view? I mean, Christians living in a very secular world, what should we expect from the world around us? And how do we share our view with other people? How do we live out this faith in the world? Well, Psalm 82, 3 to 4 gives us the challenge. It says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is a call to great action. Action of justice, which means the legal environment, uh, and also rescue for the weak and the needy. Here's what uh, what I would challenge you on this one. Jot this down. Uh, Don't do anything violent, illegal, or explicit. Don't do anything violent, violent, Uh, Christians have no business creating violent action around places that perform abortions. That is not the will of God. Fighting violence with violence will never work. And the violence inside the womb cannot be met with violence outside the womb. Never do anything violent. Illegal as well. 
Uh, I strongly advise people against doing illegal things. There are some people who take drastic action, handcuffing themselves to the doors to make sure that the, they can't open the clinic, and, and this is illegal. This is not the way God wants us to act in civilization. It's illegal. Or explicit. There are other people who have different opinions on this, but um, some people will come to me and say, you know, if you're, not, if you're not showing very graphic pictures of abortions on screen Sunday morning, your people aren't going to wake up and know what's really at stake. And I disagree. I don't think we need to do explicit things uh, and show very explicit images to tell people um, what we believe about this. When it comes to how we've taken action in the past, we have had prayer rallies. For example, we've gone to like the Planned Parenthood in Orland, and we've had a prayer rally during the 40 days of life there. Planned Parenthood is another manipulation of language. 300,000 abortions a year. That's not planning parenthood. That's preventing parenthood. Um, but we'll go there and we'll just have a prayer presence there. Uh, there are other people, other groups who try and talk to the people who are going in. Fine. I'm not against them. Um, there are other people who are more forceful and shouting, okay? I think that's too far. But I do like that people are trying to do something proactive. Jot this down. We need to be informed and proactive. Be informed and proactive. Uh, when it comes to the government, let's be clear on this. Christians should and must expect government to do the right thing and to pass laws that force other people to do the right thing. Don't get all passive in your head. Well, it's a secular society. What can I expect the government to do? I mean, you know, I'm not going to force my religion on the government. No, God's going to hold our government responsible for doing the right thing, especially when it comes to protecting life. So Christians have a right to expect that the government uh, does the right thing. So we should expect and support laws that protect the unborn. In addition, we believe government should never fund abortion with taxpayer money. It's very hard to see, but there is lots and lots of money going toward uh, Planned Parenthood every year. Um, and so when it comes to taxpayer dollars going to Planned Parenthood, things like that should be something we speak out against. I'm very grateful that President Trump has been a pro-life ally. Uh, and when it comes to supporting that policy, I think however you feel about him as a person, you should be very loud and supportive of that policy. Am I thrilled that he is trying to defund Planned Parenthood with taxpayer dollars? I am so thrilled. But just be very careful because in 1999, President Trump was interviewed and he said if he could become president, he would support partial birth abortion. So just remember, the political winds change all the time. And I'm very grateful that we have support for the pro-life policies right now. And Christians need to continue to be outspoken for that issue because the political winds can change and millions of lives are at stake. Half a billion dollars in government support goes to Planned Parenthood every year. It's a lot of money. When it comes to being informed and proactive Christians, we also need to remember uh, birth control is an important topic that plays into this discussion. Many people aren't informed on birth control. And because of that, we can actually unintentionally uh, or being unaware lead to abortions happening. And remember, when it comes to murder, murder is the unauthorized taking of a life through direct or negligent behavior. So when it comes to birth control, Christians have to know the risks. Uh, for example, if you receive some infertility treatments, you have to ask yourself, am I jeopardizing or ending a human life that has begun, a fertilized embryo? Am I prepared 
to make sure that none of the human life that begins goes, you know, to death. You have to make sure that you cover that. When it comes to birth control like an IUD, an interuterine device, you have something there that's actually scraping the walls of the uterus. Well, what is it scraping off? Well, it could be scraping off a fertilized cell, a human life. So that could create an abortion. Even the birth control pill, you need to get informed and have the facts on that. Because while the birth control pill in its primary function tries to prevent ovulation, there have been many studies that have done uh, that have been done that have showed that ovulation still does happen more than you would think while on the pill. But something else that the pill does is it creates a very thin uterine lining, uh, which means it makes it very hard, if not impossible, for that, uh, for that fertilized egg, which we would call a human, to implant. So you didn't prevent the ovulation, right? And that human then could find a uterine wall that has been tampered with so that it doesn't properly implant. And that's a secondary function of the pill. You just have to ask yourself how that weighs on your conscience, right? That there is a human life that formed in your body, but it has nowhere to implant because of something that you have put in your body. So this is what it means to be informed. This is what it means to be proactive. And in each of these cases, some of them are gray areas, and some of them, it's not as if every time you take this form of birth control, it leads to an abortion, but it could. And you have to know that, and you have to have a clear conscience on that. So how do we apply our view? Don't do anything violent, illegal, or explicit. Be informed and proactive. And jot this down. Speak up. Speak up with grace and speak up with truth. Uh, please speak up with grace. We don't want to be militant. We don't want to be furious. We don't want to be like, all caps on my Facebook all the time on this issue. Right? We, we, we want to speak up with grace. But we also want to speak up with truth. We don't want to be like jellyfish. Well, you know what? Everyone has their opinion. When lives are at stake, we want to speak up with truth and grace. I want to close out by sharing the gospel here because no doubt in a room like this, there perhaps could be some people who have had an abortion or who were involved with that. And maybe you've never heard before, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And maybe for you, this is a morning where you are faced with the horrifying reality that you have done something that in the Bible constitutes murder and you're haunted by the reality that you can never undo it what you've done cannot be reversed but it can be redeemed and in the old testament david was a man after god's own heart but because of his actions at a certain point in life a child died and he fasted and prayed that this child wouldn't die but this child died and the child was on his hands but god said that he forgave david he forgave David. And God will forgive you. God will forgive you. But you have to come into his presence. The only place where your soul can find rest, not just from this sin, but from all of your sins, is at the cross of Jesus Christ. He died to take away your sins. All of them. Every one of them. And when you come to the cross and ask Jesus for forgiveness, you can be forgiven. And you must be forgiven. You must be forgiven. So let me give you an opportunity right now to bring all of your sins to God at the cross of Christ, knowing that Jesus died to pay the penalty that you can't pay. You can never work this off your record. You can never do enough good deeds to clear your conscience. But Jesus can take this burden away because he died for your sins on the cross. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask Jesus for the forgiveness that only he can offer together. Father, we come into your presence, every one of us, guilty of sin. 
Father, we come into your presence, every one of us, as we learned last week, guilty of murder. If we have called our brother, you fool, we are guilty of murder because that's the heart that leads to the violence. I pray for those who are here today, some who perhaps have been carrying around the burden of guilt of abortion in their hearts and they don't know where to go with it. Lord, I just pray that they would go to the cross, that they would see that you gave the life of your son, that he paid the penalty for every sin, but we have to admit it. We have to repent and call it sin and we have to ask for forgiveness. So Lord, I just pray that you would bring great peace to anybody who hears this message. Lord, anybody who needs to know that they can come to you and, and confess this sin and actually be forgiven and live in newness of life. I pray right now there would be someone in their own hearts who are saying, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Jesus, save me from all my sins. And I pray that they would find the peace that can come only from heaven, that rest for their souls would flood through them and that they would know, Father, that you receive sinners like us, like them. Last week we learned a third of the Bible was written by murderers. You have great plans to use us and to redeem us after we confess our sins. So, Father, pour out your love. Pour out your mercy. Shepherd our hearts so that we might fear you, so that we might go to the nations and share this life-giving, life-saving message of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one more song together.